Welcome to the Serviced Accommodation Property Podcast. This podcast by Kevin Paneskis, also known as the Property Soldier, covers all aspects of serviced accommodation and how to make it a profitable and sustainable business. Kevin started investing in property in 1991 whilst serving in the British Army and now owns a multi-million pound property portfolio and serviced accommodation business and is a best-selling author. And now your host, Kevin Paneskis. Hello and welcome to the Service Accommodation Property Podcast. Our next speaker is Kieran Patel, who is a broker. And Kieran's going to be telling us and informing us how to work with brokers and how commercial property gets valued. And more importantly, how we can get finance for commercial property. More importantly, for this audience, service accommodation type commercial property. So let's have a massive round of applause for Kieran Patel, everyone. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Kieran Patel from Venture Finance, um, and I'm going to speak to you today about um, service accommodation property finance. So just to run through what we're going to go through, it's going to go through a little bit of our background in both property and finance. Um, I'm going to speak to you about what a commercial finance brokerage is, um, which is what venture finance is. And then a few tips around how to choose a broker and generally across your power team as well. Um, some tips on being lendable. Um, and then we're going to focus on service accommodation valuations. So how a valuer will, will value it and in turn how that um, has a knock-on effect on, on your lender. And then we're going to go through a case study on, on valuations. So that's my reason why. That's uh, my wife, Joanne, and my daughter, Aria. That was taken on her first birthday um, earlier this year. And our brokerage is run as a, as a family business uh, between me and my wife. So a bit about our professional backgrounds. We're both chartered accountants. We've had various roles in banking and industry and in the big four accountancy firms, but we're also property investors and developers. Um, so we personally use the commercial finance that we provide for our clients. So we see things from your side as well. We see things from both perspectives. So we started out in property back in, um, well, a long time ago now, back in 2012. Um, but we, we, we told our story uh, back in the February 2016 edition of YPN. Um, and, and it was a bit, of, a bit of a fluke really getting into property. We were trying to get into the property ladder um, back in 2012, living in London. Um, and it was pretty unaffordable then as well. Um, we were trying to figure out a way to get on the ladder. So BNV seems the natural way to do it. Find something that you can add value to that was affordable and we can just do it over the years and, and see how it goes. So that was our first property we bought in Leytonstone in East London. Um, and as you can see, the whole house was like the first picture and it ended up all being like the second picture. But we started out in the wrong way. We, I thought I had to do everything myself. It took a long time to do it. It took us two years to do it that way. I made a lot of mistakes. I had to get people in to correct my mistakes uh, and things like that. I had no practical skills and I've, I've learned to stick to what I'm good at since then, which is figures and spreadsheets and things like that. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't advise doing that. It didn't matter on our home because it wasn't a property deal, but on property deal where time is money, where you've got finance in place, you want to be getting the right people to do the right things. So then that was our, we, we climbed the ladder, we, we made a good profit on that first one, and we moved out into Surrey, and that was our second um, home there that we, we did in a bit of a turnaround. We decided to move out. We didn't buy it with any intention of selling it, um, but we did it up, realized how much capital uplift there was, and we got a bit, of a, a bit of a taste for it, a bit of a taste for doing up properties and selling them. And we're also looking to leave London, um, so I took the plunge to, to quit my job back in 2014. We sold this property, we moved out of London, we moved to Sheffield, um, a good area of the country for high yield properties, 
Um, didn't know anything about property really, apart from what we'd re researched online and social media and things like that. But we just took the plunge um, and, and made the move. But we were lost. We, we moved to Sheffield and was like, so what do I do now? I, I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. I went to a few networking events, didn't really get anywhere. So I came down here um, back in 2015 um, to a Masopi event. Um, and I was just quite, quite overwhelmed with with normal people doing all these different property strategies and, and how they're doing so well well on it. So I joined a mentoring program similar to what you guys are doing today with Progressive um, and things really started to take off for us. Um, so we went from refurbishing and selling two houses in three years um, to doing 15 flips in one year. And obviously I wasn't doing the work on that. We were getting builders in to do it. Um, and it was working, we had, we had our own pot of funds, but we, we were also working with um, uh, joint venture partners, investors, and leveraging the funds that we did have with bridging finance uh, and the like. And our strategy, because unusual strategy to build a portfolio is usually buy, refurbish, and finance, but we had more experience with doing a, a property up and selling it. So we, we thought, stick to what we're good at, um, and we, 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 we did the flipping strategy, and the profits from that went into to, to our buy, select, and HMO. So that's how we built up our portfolio. And then in 2018, we're, we're keen to kind of add another string to our bow. So we're great believers in multiple streams of, in, uh, of income um, as, as Progressive Teach. Um, so that's where the brokerage came from. So um, we both have great um, uh, experience in finance um, and we had a great property network nationally that we've been working with for a number of years. So we started off working with our existing um, property network and um, got repeat business from that, got referrals from that, and it just grew from there. And since then, we've, um, we've, we've contributed um, several articles to Your Property Network magazine, both as property investors and for our brokerage. And um, we are now also um, property, progressive property approved brokers. So what is a commercial finance brokerage? Many people who are in property probably regard it more as property finance, commercial mortgages, things like that. We also have a business finance side, side to the business as well. And we, we work for all industry sectors and we, we have a panel of, of over 200 funders. So a little bit on business finance, we're not going to focus on this too much today, but broadly speaking, it covers uh, commercial mortgages for business premises, for business owners, um, startup loans, specialist facilities like invoice finance and asset finance. Um, we, we deal with businesses acquiring other businesses, so business acquisition finance, and there's lots of creative ways to, 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 to structure that sort of um, deal. Um, but more importantly for today, property finance. So broadly speaking, that covers bridging loans, property development finance, commercial investment mortgages and um, specialist facilities such as portfolio facilities. So a little bit on bridging loans. Um, broadly, generally speaking, a bridging loan is used for a property that's unmortgageable. So it might have structural problems, it might have timber and damp issues. It means you're not going to get it through with a mortgage lender. So you buy with bridging, you sort out the problem, and then you can go on a mortgage or, or sell it, depending on what your, what your strategy is. Also works very well for short leases. So you might have a property that's just got, I don't know, 45 years left on the lease. You can purchase that property, um, increase, the, uh, extend the lease, or buy the freehold, and then it becomes mortgageable. Also very good for land that, that, that you're being speculative on. So land where there's no planning in place, you can purchase the land with bridging, you can acquire um, planning permission, and then you can either sell it and get the gain on it, or you can go on to development finance, because development finance requires uh, planning to be in place. And the most popular one that we deal with is auction finance. So as you may know, most auctions require you to complete within 28 days of the gavel falling. Um, you're not going to get through that on a mortgage. So using the right bridging lenders, I stress that the right bridging lenders, you can get um, auction, auction properties through within 28 days within your contract terms.
And then on to property development finance, which we're gonna to speak to a little bit more about later. But broadly speaking, it covers new builds. So um, you, you might be building um, a state of houses or a block of flats um, and also conversions. So recently there's, um, uh, there's, there's permissive development rights for office to residential conversions. Um, so a lot of people are taking advantage of these rights um, and, and it's a very popular strategy that would come under property development finance. And we can fund up to 75% at day one. So that could either be the purchase or if you've purchased in cash, we can, we can do a drawdown on 75% and then up to 100% of the works and professional fees. And then very important commercial mortgages, because if you've taken out bridging finance or development finance on a property deal, you need to know up front that you've got an exit. So if you're not looking to sell, you need to know that there are options available to you um, to keep it, so i.e. a commercial mortgage. Um, so whether it be a multi-unit block, serviced accommodation block, a very large HMO, commercial property, um, th this is the type of mortgage that you'd use, a commercial mortgage um, for your exit. And generally speaking, we can lend up to seven, we can arrange up to 75% loan to value. So as a brokerage, we deal with a full, full range of deals. We do lots of two-bed terraces in need of refurbishment, where we'll do bridging finance for, um, and we'll do the large deals as well. We've recently um, done um, a conversion of, a, of an office building to 40 apartments under permitted development rights, and we've also worked on the mortgage for that as well. So we did the development finance and the mortgage for that. So just a few tips on what you should have in place um, prior to arranging or looking for property finance. So the most obvious one is finding a good deal. Sounds obvious, but finding good property deals is probably one of the hardest things in property. And if you're struggling to find it or you don't have the time, always consider using a sourcer. Um, and always have a broker up front uh, that you know you're gonna to approach to, that when you've got your deal, you know who to approach to, to arrange your property finance. Always prepare a project appraisal or a business plan for, for, for the deal you're doing. Have a standardized approach if you're following a certain strategy of how you're gonna appraise those deals because a lot of that information is gonna to need to be collected by your broker and it just speeds up the process. And just as a general, general kind of housekeeping points, if you have a Google Drive folder or a Dropbox or something like that, having your last six months bank statements, your last six months payslips, three years of accounts, and also having prepared a CV of your track record, because as you get onto bigger and bigger deals, lenders want to see more about your track record in property, the kind of high level figures of the projects that you've done, um, and things like that. And obviously, if you do have a rental portfolio, make sure you keep all your information up to date. It's, it's, it's amazing how often you see out of date information that actually works against applicants sometimes because they've not updated the loan to values, the valuations of the properties, the mortgages that they're on, um, and things like that. So a little bit about choosing a broker and, and also just choosing people in your power team generally. And I think the biggest tip I can give on this is using people that invest in property themselves because they, they understand it, they walk the walk, they use, they, they know things from your perspective. Um, and, and, and ideally, people who use the services they provide. Um, people that are endorsed by others, such as Progressive Property, or people that are rec recommended. Like you've got a great network here at Progressive, people that, that are recommended by other investors who've had a good experience of, of using um, certain people in their power team. And then also people that, that contribute themselves, so thought leadership, I like to call it, um, writing in magazines and podcasts or, or insights on social media and people that help people on social media and answer questions and things like that. But more specific to choosing a broker, I'd say the biggest piece of advice is do not use several brokers. And I can see why it's tempting to do so, and I've fallen for that before, before when I was a property investor full time. Um, but if you use several brokers, brokers know you're using several brokers, they just get a feeling for it. And you'll get your best service levels by using one broker and developing a relationship over time. 
and always ensure that your broker is being transparent with their broker fee up front. They should be telling you this information. You shouldn't have to ask. Um, it, it's something that's going to be charged, um, and, and, and you need to know, and you shouldn't have to ask the awkward question. Um, and, and as alluded to earlier, every broker should be asking. If you're getting into bridging, um, bridging finance or development loans, they should be discussing your exit with you. They should know what your intention is up front to get out of that bridging loan or development finance, even if they're not going to be arranging that for you, because you need to know up front before you commit yourself to that deal and expensive finance um, that you've got a way out. And as I've said before, people that, that use property finance themselves, brokers that use it themselves, um, that they've had to overcome the same funding challenges from a personal perspective as, as what you'll have to do. So there's not many challenges that they, they, they won't have had to do themselves. So some tips on being lendable. Now, this is mostly um, relevant to, to development finance in commercial mortgages because bridging finance is what I like to call more asset-based lending. So lenders look more at the asset that you're looking to buy rather than the profile as you as a person. Most people qualify for bridging finance, with a few exceptions, but most people do. Whereas development finance, you obviously need a good deal. So don't even think about going forward unless you've got at least 15 to 20% profit on cost. Um, but also, Development finance lenders are looking that you've got the right team of people around you. So they want to see that you've got an experienced contractor, you've got the right architects, the, the right QS. Um, everything's in place and, and it shows that you've got a slick operation that, that reduces their risk effectively. And for both development finance and commercial mortgages, the lenders are looking for, for, for borrowers that have a great track record. So. If, you, if you're new to, to a certain strategy, um, and it's, well, I don't know, like a commercial conversion or something like that, and you've only maybe got a couple of single lets, that's quite a big jump to make um, in property, and lenders don't like jumps like that, so you're probably going to struggle getting finance in place. But the way you get around that is you work with people who do have the experience. So there's, there's a million ways to structure a joint venture, and, and you're at the right place to learn how to do it. Progressive you know, will we'll, we'll teach things like that. But that's how you can, if you do want to make a jump and you don't want to grow organically from, from smaller deals, deals to bigger deals, working with people that have undertaken that um, strategy is the best way forward. So we're going to go through service combination finance now. And broadly speaking, this covers development finance. So when you're looking to build a block or convert a block to be used as service combination, and then commercial mortgages when you've got it all up and running and um, you're, you're looking to run it as a business effectively. So I want to focus today on the lender's appraisal of your proposal. So when you put an application or a business plan through your broker, how is the lender going to look at it? So you prepare your business plan, your broker should help you do this, show you what to focus on, and because and, every lender's different, so you need to know from your broker how, how it works with that particular lender. And really, the way a lender assesses this is through their valuation. So they have internal underwriters that, that will assess it as well, but they're relying on the information in, in, the, in the valuation itself, which will essentially challenge everything that's in your business plan. So the key things, and, and this is very, very important in service combination, is supply and demand. The, 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 the value that goes out for the lender is going to be assessing the supply and demand for that particular area, for, 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 for your SA block. I'm talking about SA blocks today. I appreciate that people do different sizes of SA. I'm focusing on the, on the bigger stuff here. But this supply and demand applies to, to all sizes of property. So generally speaking, when you look at an SA block, um, a lender will look at what is in a 10-mile radius. And that's not to say that if there's lots of blocks in that radius, that means that, that it's, it's not good for you. But they'll, they'll look at what's, what's in, in the immediate um, radius. And if there's lots of things in it that are similar, so there might be a, a big Premier Inn offering budget accommodation, and you might be looking to offer budget SA, um, they'll look at differentiating factors. So 
your competitor is Premier Inn, but you're going to be offering something slightly different. You're going to have a kitchenette. Premier Inn doesn't. So they'll, they'll really look at the detail of it um, to, to, to establish what the suppliers and, and what the differentiating factors are. They'll also look at um, what service accommodation blocks are under construction at the moment in the area, so how the supply might be increasing in, in the, the coming months or the coming years. And, and, and they'll even go as far as looking at planning applications on the planning portal um, to see what um, developers have uh, um, submitted as applications at the moment, applied for service accommodation blocks, and how that might affect the supply um, in, the, in the immediate future. And then they'll, on, the, on the other side, they'll look at demand. They, you need a, a balance between supply and demand. Um, and, and they're going to be looking at what your target market is. So you're always going to have to say, when you apply for, for, for finance or service accommodation, you're going to have to say what your target mar market is. So it could be tourists, it could be business people, contractors, domestic customers, overseas customers, um, the rest of it. And, and there's lots of different ways that demand could vary. So it, it, could be it could be based on seasonality. So there could be a particular event like, I don't know, like the Edinburgh Festival or something like that, or local attractions that people go to see. They'll take all this into consideration to figure out what the demand in the area is for, for, for where you're looking to, um, to, to invest. They'll look at things like typical length of stay, number of visitors to the area. And if, you're, if there's a, a lot of um, service accommodation in the area that you're looking to, to invest, um, but there's a high occupancy rate in the local um, market, if you're just adding a, a small proportion of rooms to that, that's actually a good thing for you. So don't look at it as being, oh, there's loads of other people doing SA in this area it's not going to work for us. It's, it's how it works in context. And, and a, a very popular thing with service accommodation, especially with the bigger blocks, is having um, differentiating yourself with things like restaurants, bars, and cafes on the ground floor. Um, and the way a lender will look at this, really they're, they're focusing, focusing on your tenant covenant. So by that I mean how strong a tenant you have, how risky is that tenant to that lender. And the key thing that will drive their decision on that is whether it's a national or a local tenant. So there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, it, it works like that. So if you've got a national brand, they're, they're less likely to go under. So it means they're always going to pay your, your rent and you're, you're, you're going to be paying your mortgage in, or, or you know, your mortgage effectively. Whereas a local brand uh, may only have one or two locations locally, might not have any locations, they might be new. That's quite a high risk to a lender. So you might have a local brand looking to pay you more rent than a national brand, but when it comes to evaluation, the local brand could generate a lower valuation. So it's quite important to, to, to bear that in mind when you're negotiating, if you do have a, um, a ground floor lease for a hotel or for a restaurant or something like that, it's important to bear that in mind when you're deciding who to negotiate with. So we go through a case study now. So this was one that we arranged recently. So it's for a 14,000 square foot dilapidated hotel. So it had the correct use class already. Um, so and it was dilapidated, it, it wasn't really working in its current form, it needed refurbishing. Um, our clients bought it in cash before they approached us, and they had the funds to do that. Um, and their idea was to get planning permission in place to convert it to an SA block. Um, so they did that, um, and, and they got they, they broadly kept to the configuration that the hotel had already. So it was actually a 32 room hotel, and they converted it to a 32 apart 32 unit apart hotel, and they added in a ground floor restaurant. So the figures worked like this. They purchased it, including purchase cost, it came in at 650, 1.2 million for works and fees, with a very healthy GDP of 3.2 million. This is probably one of the best deals that I've seen. A really good margin there, 1.35 million. Um, so plenty of headspace, plenty of contingency there. And their strategy was, was a dual strategy. So during the week, 
They, um, they wanted contractors. Um, it, it, there wasn't much of a professional market in that area, but contractors working on the roads, working for, for various you know, different kind of contracting type, type, type roles. Um, but at the weekends, there was a good market for tourists, the area. So they focused on tourists at weekends. Um, and they had, you know, they had some, some great initial feedback. They had a, an overseas company looking for a six month booking for 60 workers. So this, this hotel accommodates 65 people. So they had their, their Monday to Friday business covered for 60 rooms for six months because an overseas company had, some, had a team of people working at a nearby um, science park. So uh, you know, they're, they're covered, they've got no void. They've got a, basically 100% option during, during the week there. And their, and their weekend market for tourists was, was very good as well. There were no other SA blocks within 10 miles, which was, which was quite, quite, quite something considering the occupancy levels they're achieving now. So they're, they're, they're the people that are new to that area doing SA. Um, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, there was a Premier Inn um, locally that had a very high occupancy, the highest occupancy in the, in the country. And that gave them a lot of confidence to go forward with, with this deal because there's no SA blocks, but Premier Inn are doing really well. So there's people that want a kitchen, that they want what SA provides that hotels don't provide. So that gave them um, the confidence they needed to go forward and, and the value recognised that as well. So their target occupancy is 75%, um, which is well above what they need to break even, which is just 48%. So we arranged a development finance for this. So they got the planning in place. They came to us, said, we've got planning permission now. We now qualify for de development finance. Um, what can you get us? So we got them what they wanted, 100% towards the works and fees, um, funded in arrears. And we could have got them 65% at day one as well, but they didn't require those funds. They were happy to keep their borrowing down. Um, they had their own cash funds, so they didn't require the, the initial day one. Um, and then the, fee, the, the, the terms there, 2% arrangement fee, no exit fee, quite a competitive interest rate at 0.625% per month. And then just fairly typical valuation fees and lenders legal fees there, 3,500, and our broker fee of 495. So going through the valuation for development finance purposes, so initially they look at the, the building as it is. So they'll come on to GDV later, but, but what is the asset that, that we're, we're looking to finance now? So a fairly straightforward approach to this. They, they verify the, 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 the price agreed or the price paid um, with nearby um, comparables. There were some redundant hotels that have been sold recently in the area. So it was very easy for this valuer to, to value this when, when you read through the report. And what they do, no two hotels will have the same number of rooms. So they work out um, a capital value per unit. So for a, for a 32 unit hotel, that's 650,000 pounds purchase price, divide that by 32 per unit, it's 20,300. And then that's your comparable to compare to anything that might have sold in the area. They might adjust it for desirability of your rooms compared to others from location, things like that. But broadly speaking, that is the approach. And the more complicated is the GDV, the end valuation, why you're getting the development finance out, what the end product's gonna be. And for this particular one, they don't always do this, but they divided it into two valuations. One was for the restaurant, which was on a local yield basis, and one was for the hotel, which is valued on the net present value of future income. So the reason they valued the restaurant separately in this case is because the, the restaurant was leased separately, therefore it can be sold separately, and therefore it can be valued separately. Sometimes operators might, it might be as part of their operation doing the restaurant. This was completely separate. It was a separate lessee, um, so it was considered separate. So the value established the local yields. So they, they looked at nearby comps, what, what restaurants sold for um, locally um, in, in, in the recent past, looked at what rent was paid on it. So you work out a yield based on those figures. 
um, and um, adjusted for the strength of Coveney, which we spoke about earlier, uh, for this particular location. So they had, they didn't have a fantastic tenant covenant, but they had a local a local operator that had a number of locations locally. So it wasn't as good as a national tenant, but it was it was quite good. And and they settled on eleven percent yield. So on their ten year lease, they were paying forty two thousand pound per annum. This restaurant. Um, which on an 11% yield worked out at a £380,000 valuation. And then the more complicated one is the valuing the hotel units. Um, so the way the valuer did it on this one, and this is quite a standard way to do it, is the capitalization of future trading profit, or EBITDA. So they look at that, they add up the future profits year on year, and then they discount it, at a given discount rate to come at a present value today. What are those future incomes worth to us today? So for development finance, obviously it's not up and running yet, so you need projected figures. So development finance will always, they'll always run the valuation on, on projected figures of EBITDA. With a commercial mortgage, it depends what sort of deal you've got. If you've bought, say, if you, I don't know, bought a, com, uh, a service accommodation block in cash and you've been running it for a few years and then you decide to get a mortgage on it, you've got actual figures to, to, to base the valuation on. So they don't need projected figures. Um, whereas if you've just developed one and you've just um, set it up and you're looking to go straight onto a mortgage, you might have a few months of actual figures, which they'll want to see, um, but, but generally, again, it will be one-off projections. And it's quite common to get the operator involved here. So the operator that you've got in looking after your SA block, um, if it's a fairly decent setup operator, that they'll be able to run the projections for you. The, the valuer will want projections from a third party like that, someone that has local experience um, and things like that. So they had a, a f f they, they run the figures on an on initial occupancy at 56%. So for year one, they're, they're saying, it's going to take a few years to set this up to, to, to get into the flow. At year one, we're going we're gonna to project a 56% occupancy. And then by year four, at 75%. And the lender did agree with these projections, which, um, which is a fairly, fairly good occupancy level. So going into EBITDA a little bit. So EBITDA, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. We're not gonna focus on this too much. You're getting a bit too accountancy here, which is my background, unfortunately. Um, but basically, it's the profit after all operating expenses. Um, so things like your, your operator charges, repairs, maintenance, um, and, and non-direct expenses. Typically, your operator, I mean, it's down to the hotel management agreement that you have in place, but typically a 20% um, of booking fee is charged. Um, in addition to um, charges for maintenance and call-outs and things like that. And then what they do is they, they, they work out the MPV, the net present value of what all those future profits are in the future years, um, uh, what, what that's worth to us today based on a discount rate. So a discount rate is basically a percentage that is arrived at by a valuer with various information they have open to them based on the local yield um, and, and, and adjusted for your property. For, so things that are good about your property would, would um, reduce the discount rate. If you're not in a, such a good location as, as, as many locally, it might increase your, your discount rate. So put, put this into, some fig, into, a, into a case study. Um, well, it's actually the, the case study we've just been speaking about. Um, they had a projected EBITDA for the first 10 years of 3.55 million. So that is essentially taking the profit every year for the next 10 years, add it up, it came to 3.55 million. So what the valuer did is they applied a different discount rate for each year of one to 10. And then they that discounted that down to come to a present value of that 3.55 million of 1.73 million. So they're saying that 3.55 million is worth to me today 1.73 million. And then they did a separate calculation for beyond 10 years. 
Um, beyond 10 years, that income is worth less to us because there's more risk. Time comes with risk. So in the future, things are worth less to us. So beyond year 10, they applied a very convoluted and complex calculation, which I won't go into, but those those profits are worth 1.11 million to us today. So you add those two up, it came to 2.84 million. And then you add that to the restaurant, which gave it an overall SA block valuation of 3.2 million. So just a bit on discount rates, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to explain. It's, it's one of those things that it's a bit subjective. Um, but it's basically what determines valuations. When, when you're doing a commercial valuation, this is how a valuer does it. They use a discount rate um, that is effective. Come, it's arrived at through the local yield, it's arrived at considering risk for that particular um, project, it's arrived at for regulatory potential regulatory changes, just unforeseen circumstances and uncertainty come into it. So, so as you can see, so beyond 10 years, it's further in the future, so the discount rate is increased. So what my tip is, don't worry about discount rates and things like that. It's like you're never going to be able to, to know how a valuer values something. It's good to understand their process, but you're never going to be able to sit at your desk and come up with the same valuation they have, because it's quite subjective. Even if you understand everything they do, it's quite subjective, and they have their own resources that we don't have access to, to know how to do it. So my biggest tip, if, you, if you're entering into a big deal like this, where you're doing, it doesn't have to be as big as this, 30 units. If you're doing five, 10 units or, or less, um, and, and, and you really don't, you, you're struggling to get an end valuation to know what your your block is going to be worth at the end, just pay for a, for a Rix valuer to go out. Just instruct one yourself. It's just a cost of due diligence. It's the same as, as, as appointing an architect, a planning consultant, a QS. It's just another one of those costs. So that is probably my biggest tip, which hopefully you agree with after seeing how convoluted it is to actually come to a valuation. So just to finish off on that case study, we arranged the mortgage on that one too. Um, on that one, we got a 65% loan-to-value mortgage. We can go higher than that. We can go up to 75%. And for various reasons, the lender was, was, was happy at 65% on this one. But the most important thing was that gave them a mortgage of 2.08 million, which was more than the funds they put in. So they released all their funds on that. So they've got no funds locked in this deal, and they're making, what was it, 3.5 million in 10 years. Um, so not a bad deal at all. They got that over a 25-year term, managed to get the first five years interest only, which is another um, important distinction between a commercial mortgage and a regular buy to let. A lot of commercial mortgage lenders will want some form of capital repayment in there somewhere. You can get interest only, but when you get to all these bigger deals, they, they want to see a repayment strategy in there. Fairly competitive interest rate of 4.25% on a five-year fixed, 2% arrangement fee, and there's your valuation and lender's legal fees there. So we've, uh, we've put together some product guides for the various different forms of finance that, that we arrange at Venture Finance. So I've, I've given some business cards to Sam at the back, so if, if, feel free to get my details, or I don't think you can see on screen, they're quite a bit small, but happy to share those by email, get in touch, happy to share them and, um, and, and speak through anything that you'd like to on that. Um, so thanks for listening, hope you found some of that content useful. I'll hand back to Kevin. Thank you very much, Kieran. Thank you. <laughs> Very interesting. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So, for those people listening into the podcast, how would uh, how should they reach out to you to contact you yeah. personally? Well, it's venturefinanceuk.com is our website. Um, my email address is kieran at venturefinanceuk.com. We're on social media, so we're on Facebook and LinkedIn also. Fantastic. Yeah. Round of applause for Kieran, everyone. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Serviced Accommodation Property Podcast. You can also follow me on social media and YouTube by searching The Property Soldier. Also check out my website, www.propertysoldier.co.uk, where you can learn even more about property investing and serviced accommodation. 